All right, our sermon passage this morning is in the book of Matthew. I invite you to turn there with me if you have your Bible, or you can uh, follow along up here on the wall. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. Please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and said, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father and our God, we come before you as your people and those who maybe are not yet your people, and we ask that you would speak. Lord, we need you. We need to hear you. We need to be filled with your spirit. And so we sit humbly at your feet, asking to be taught, to be encouraged, to be challenged. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, when was the last time you were faced with a paradox or a walking contradiction? What was the last thing in your life uh, where you saw two things that shouldn't go together, uh, together in your life? I was talking with a friend recently, just a a few weeks ago. He and his wife had the opportunity to to travel in Italy. They went to Rome, they went to Vatican City, and they went to St. Peter's Basilica. And I asked him on, you know, in the conversation, what was your favorite thing that you saw? And he said, have you ever been to St. Peter's Basilica? It's a humongous, I guess basilica is a word for huge church. Um, That's what it is. It's it's the main church uh, in Vatican City where the Pope lives and all that kind of stuff. Um... And, and I was like, I know, that's my favorite place on earth that I've ever been. I've gotten to go to St. Peter's three times in the course of my life, and it is incredible. You walk into this, I've never been in a building that is so incredibly beautiful and so uh, awe-inspiring. I mean, you are swallowed by the size, the sheer, sheer size of this building. I, I was taking a photography class in college, and I had this old camera, and uh, you could see this pattern on the ground, and you look up, and it's one of those big domes, and I laid my camera down on the ground. Uh, thankfully, it wasn't too busy, and I put the timer on. I took a picture straight up, and when I got it developed, it, it was perfectly placed, right? This, this markings on the ground and the dome hundreds of feet in the air. I could see once I had it developed, like the arch- architectural precision, of this humongous, not only is it beautiful, not only is it awe-inspiring, but, but everything is, is just 
So also Michelangelo's Pieta. I, I think, am I saying that right, Andrew? Yeah. Um, one of the most gorgeous uh, uh, sculptures I've ever seen. Anyway, incredible. And yet, I also knew and have learned that uh, St. Peter's Basilica was, was built with money that was sort of extorted by the church from a lot of common people. If you ever heard of indulgences, these were, uh, they, they still exist in the Catholic Church. If you're Catholic, no offense, I grew up Catholic, so I can, I can talk about it. Um, indulgences are a way of paying the church money to try to get your relatives out of purgatory early. You're literally buying God off uh, to try to get, you know, your, your, your family members, grandma, get her into heaven hundreds of years earlier. Uh, it was a scam, and it's actually one of the things that was one of Martin Luther's big complaints that helped lead to the Reformation. The whole Protestant church, St. Peter's, this beautiful, awe-inspiring building, uh, was very controversial. And, and if you go through the Vatican Museum, you see, uh, I remember doing that for the very first time, and you just see all this opulent wealth, gold plates and scepters and paintings of popes throughout the, the ages being carried around on litters like kings. And it just couldn't have been more obvious to me, a new believer at the time, that this, this looked nothing like Jesus' ministry. A man who, who had no place to lay his head, who, who denied, you know, the people's praise and, and um, invitations into celebrity. So to me, St. Peter's, and, and my friend was re- resonating with this, St. Peter's is a paradox. I experienced the presence and the grandeur of God in that building. And yet I know that it, it was built and in many ways contradicts the very ministry of our Lord. So what paradoxes have you experienced in your life? You may be experiencing some right now. Joy in the midst of sorrow, uh, hope in the midst of suffering, or other things. That's what we're going to look at today in our passage. I think Matthew crafts and, and tells us this story today about Jesus' triumphal entry. That's what it's typically called, not because of what it says in the text, but what we, we see. This is Messiah coming and arriving at the city of David. Uh, this is, in some ways, the climax of his ministry. But Matthew intentionally tells the story in such a way to show us a paradox that exists in the person of Jesus that really explains and helps us understand who he is, but also who he wants us as his church to be. So that's what I want us to look at this morning. We're going to kind of briefly review the passage and, and pick out some things, and then I'm going to make three uh, draw out three implications for us as followers of Christ, okay? Ready? All right, let's jump in. First context. As we said, Jesus is arriving at Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had been to Jerusalem in the past, but this was special. Earlier, he had told his disciples that he was headed to Jerusalem, and when he arrived, he would be arrested by the Jews, he'd be handed over to the Romans, he'd be flogged, he'd be mocked, he'd be crucified. And on the third day, he would rise again. Now, uh, he told his disciples that on three different occasions. It took a long time to walk from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. And so they had, he had a lot of time to teach them and to tell them. And it just seems like the disciples never fully realized what was happening. They believed Jesus was the Messiah, the promised king, the one who was sent by God to save them from their enemies. And this is who he was. And 
But as, and as he drew closer to Jerusalem, a crowd was getting bigger and bigger, following him. Uh, and we see it in our passage today. They are, it is a throng of people. They are going before him and after him. And as he draws near to Jerusalem, riding on this donkey, they are laying their cloaks on the ground. They're cutting down branches to lay before him so that the feet of the donkey don't have to touch the ground. This was red carpet treatment for a long-awaited Savior and King. That's what is happening. And, and the people are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna is Hebrew for, Oh, save! Oh, save us! Oh, Lord. It's, it's a prayer. It's a cry to God. But it was also a blessing. If you, when you entered into the temple in Jerusalem, the priests who would greet you would often say, Hosanna! which means save. It was, it was kind of a greeting. And so we could translate what these people are saying here as God save the king, right? It's a blessing on Jesus, the son of David, Messiah. God save the king. Blessed is the one whom God has sent to bring us salvation. So uh, the people's anticipation, the energy uh, was incredible, intoxicating. Now Matthew tells us things went down this way to fulfill prophecies from the prophet Zechariah and the prophet Isaiah. That's what had put this hope in the minds of God's people, and they were, uh, they were fully aware of that as Jesus came. And the hubbub was so grand that people from Jerusalem, right, this, this crowd is coming with Jesus, and so the people of Jerusalem are seeing what's going on, they're hearing what's going on, and they come and they ask around, who is this? Who is this one who's coming into our city, the city of David, with such pomp and circumstance? And in fact, this is the question Jesus wants us to be asking, right? This is, this is Matthew's question. This is the question he's seeking to answer. Who is this one? But here, it's just in this moment where the paradox comes in. It's Jesus' choice of a donkey to ride into the city. Now, yes, it, this was prophesied in the Old Testament. Jesus chose a donkey because he's fulfilling all righteousness. He's fulfilling prophecy. But it was also intentionally chosen as a symbol. Traditionally, as you would expect, uh, a royal war horse is what a triumphant king would ride into his city. Whether he was returning home or whether he was entering into a, a conquered city, he would, he would ride on a beautiful, well-groomed, well-decorated war horse. And for, for ages, you know, we see this hundreds, uh, if not thousands of years earlier in the Old Testament, that, that horses have always been a symbol of power and royalty and victory, while donkeys, you know, they, they didn't have a, you know, I mean, I don't think donkeys are particularly majestic, do you? Right? They're, they're workhorses, they're pack animals, they carry heavy burdens, they're slow, they're ornery and stubborn, right? Stubborn as a mule is a saying, it's not, you know, for, it's for a reason. Uh, so the people didn't get it. Uh, they didn't understand. They, they knew Messiah was coming. They saw that he was on a mule. But they didn't understand. Um, Any more that they understood that, that Messiah would climb upon his throne and win the victory by being raised up on a Roman cross, right? Another paradox in the life and ministry 
of Jesus. But over time, this image of Jesus on a donkey, the king arriving home uh, on a beast of burden, this, this would become an image that captured the heart of Jesus' ministry and would become a symbol of who we are to be as God's people in the world. So, three implications I want to draw from from Jesus' symbolic act entering into Jerusalem. First, uh, this affects the way we view and relate to Jesus. Second, it, it affects the way we view and relate to ourselves. And third, it changes the way we view and relate to the world. So, Jesus, ourselves, and the world. So, let's walk through this. First, this entrance, this paradoxical entrance, affects the way we view and relate to Jesus, right? What is Jesus communicating? I am your true and rightful king, monarch, lord. Now, we, I think we as Americans, we really suffer to, to get this, right? We live in a democracy. Our opinion counts. We can write op-ed pieces. You know, we can kind of flout the law. Uh, but you don't do that with a monarch, a real monarch, and Jesus, on many occasions, he, he, was, he never shied away from that title, that king, that identity. He was worthy of all glory and honor and obedience as king of a people. But as we come to find out, not just a king of Israel or the Jews, but king of the universe. This is who Jesus is. At the same time, he willingly, as the very son of God, took on flesh, became a human being because he wanted to draw near. He wanted to have an intimate and personal relationship with his creation. This is why scripture is full of metaphors and, and images that help us to understand and to tease out our relationship with God. One of my favorites is Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah he is caught up in a vision into the very courtroom of heaven. It's a courtroom because God is a king and he sees there in heaven on a throne high and lifted up the very God of the universe as a king in all his glory. And in seeing him in that context, right, with those angels flying around and singing glory, 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 uh, Isaiah is almost undone. Like he's, he's literally like having a panic attack. He's falling apart. He's going to be a puddle on the ground until God himself intervenes. That's one picture of God's awesome glory. But on the other hand, we have the Song of Songs. Have you ever read that Old Testament poem where God's relationship with his people is expressed through a sometimes very graphic love poem? And in, in the New Testament, Jesus' relationship with his people is expressed through a number of pictures. He is a king, he's a brother, he's a friend, he's a husband. And as I think about these two things that Jesus is holding into connection, I, it reminded me of uh, one of my favorite shows as a kid, Sesame Street. I just remember Sesame Street would just teach you these very basic concepts. And, and there was one there, this little monster, I don't remember which one. Um, they would come out onto the screen and they were li little and they would say, far! And then they would run, and they'd get real big on the screen. They would say, near! It was Grover? Okay, well that makes sense. And then he would run away. He would say, far, near. And Jesus holds these two things, right? He is, he is the awesome king, creator of the universe. He is high and lifted up, and we can't even get close to him, right? God told Moses, no one can look upon my glory and live. And yet Jesus, the incarnate one, came and he, like, he got into the nitty-gritty. 
Anyway, we could go on. Near and far. And this affects our worship. Right? Some churches and some individuals emphasize this, a solemn form of worship that is full of reverence and awe. There can be a lot of silence, a lot of pregnant pauses, a lot of sobriety. While other churches are more ruckus, they have loud music and dancing in the aisle. Right? One tends to emphasize one image of God and one another. It can affect our dress and worship. Some come to church more casual. We're, we're one of those churches. Um, we want to highlight Jesus' willingness to meet us where we are. Right? We wear what we wear during the week. We, can, we, can, we want to express through our dress that, that God is willing to invite us in just as we are. We don't do anything to uh, earn our presence with him. While other churches, they dress to the nines, right? They wear their Sunday best, right? And back in culture, that was the best clothes that you wore, were the ones you wore to worship. Why? Because you're coming into the presence of the king. If you, had, if you received today an invitation to actually have an audience with uh, the queen of England, what would you wear? Shorts and flip-flops? I, I don't think so, right? Our dress can reflect our view of God. And it affects our personal relationship with Jesus. Some people are so reverent and fearful of God, they seem to forget Jesus' humility, his desire to be close and intimate. And some are too casual toward Jesus, and they treat them like a buddy or an afterthought or an actual servant who is beneath us. Right? As human beings, we don't do well with paradox. We tend to one extreme or the other. And so it's helpful for us to be reminded that Jesus holds in himself this paradox, these two extremes, and in him they are perfectly balanced. And so just as it's imperative that we remember that our triune God is both one and three, so we are to remember that Jesus is both our king and the one who is willing to humble himself. Okay. Second, uh, this picture of Jesus, this paradox, teaches us about how we are to relate to ourselves. Uh, one of the crazy things about Jesus was that he was so free from cultural traps, the, what we often call the fear of man. Uh, this is something I struggle with, probably many of us struggle with, and so I, I stand in awe of Jesus often, how he is so, uh, he's so at ease among children, and yet he can stand before Pontius Pilate, who has the power of life and death over him, and, and, and he really just seems comfortable wherever he goes. Uh, and where does this come from, this ability to speak with the powerful, the poor, the learned, and children? Well, it's because he was so full of his sense of identity as a beloved son of God. That's why Matthew places that time Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he's tempted by the devil. That happens right after his baptism, where the heavens open up and the, the Spirit descends like a dove and the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You see, Jesus knew who he was. He was the beloved Son of God. And because he had God's full and abounding love, he knew that his Father in heaven rejoiced over him with singing. He knew, he believed that Jesus hung the moon. I mean, literally he hung the moon. But he also, he just loved Jesus. Because of that, Jesus had little patience or need for the praise of men, which is often hollow and self-seeking. Anyway, Jesus was 
was just free in who he was because he lived out of his identity with God. And beloved, this groundedness, this same uh, freedom is offered to us who are in Christ. The Father rejoices over us with singing. Um, this is something the Lord has been teaching me, one of the deeper truths over the last few years that has become more and more real and more and more true for me, that the, the fears and the sins I often get entangled in are because I doubt and I don't live out of my grounding as a beloved son of God. And so I go out into the world and I seek approval. I seek success. I seek to attach myself to those I think are successful so that I can leech off <laughs> a little for myself. But God wants me to know and he wants you to know that if you're in Christ, you are absolutely beloved. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you any more than he does today, than the day that you put your faith in Christ. What does that mean? <laughs> that means that when you fail, when you, have, when you think you have let God down, and, you know, when you've sinned, when you've disobeyed God willingly, unwillingly, accidentally, we have this feeling in ourselves like, oh, God is probably so disappointed. Is God ashamed of me? Uh-huh. How can God love a sinner like me? I'm caught in this web, this cycle of sin. And yet what the scriptures show us and tell us is that it's our very sin and weakness that draws him to us. Yes, it's true that God wants us to be sanctified, to become more holy, to say no to sin and yes to him, but not so that he would love us more, so that we would enjoy life more. <laughs> because we know that he is, and he knows that he is, he is the fullness of joy in us. And so over these last few years, the words of Scripture, these words have become very real to me. God is our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. Therefore, I will not fear though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though the, the earth is shifting around me and nothing feels stable, right? I, I think it's a great way to describe this time in COVID. Though that's what my life feels like, yet I rejoice, I stand on solid ground because of the love of God. And so if that is something you long for more than you experience today, here's, here's the application. Go and spend time with God. Spend a ridiculously uh, irresponsible amount of time with God. Blow off work, blow off things you need to do, Go sit with God. Read the scriptures. Read the Song of Songs and tell yourself, this is about me. <laughs> this is how God views me. Read Jesus' words to sinners, his promises that he is gentle and lowly and all those who are weary and heavy laden, come to him and he will give you rest for your souls. Jesus loves you dearly. Read 1 John. Embrace and become grounded in the love of God for you so that you can become free of needing the love and affirmation of others. Therefore, you are free to love and to serve others. Beloved, if you are in Christ, then you are beloved of God, and there's nothing that can change that. Okay, finally, this paradox about Jesus that Jesus shows us here shapes us and our view and relationship to the world. Uh, and I've been hitting on this recently in these last few sermons and I, because I think it's important, but I'm going to hit on it again today. 
Um, Jesus was freed up from uh, a need to gravitate towards wealth and power. This is something that the church has struggled with since its birth. So this is nothing new, but it's also still present with us. There is something, and there's something, it manifests itself even in a particularly unique way in the American church. We just send, we tend to gravitate towards wealth. We tend to gravitate towards power. We tend to gravitate towards influence, right? There's a whole, I don't even know if it's still around, but 15, 20 years ago, there was a Christian magazine called Relevant Relevant magazine, and I read it. It was good, uh, but it had this idea: Are we relevant? Are we are we influencing culture? Are we do we have the right connections to people in power? Can we make things happen? Can we bring the kingdom of God here? And I, I think a lot of that can spring from a good place in the human heart, and yet the human heart also just wants to be where the action is what's cool, what's happening. We want to see something happen. We want to be a part of that. But as we read the scriptures, whether it's the old or the new testaments, God just doesn't seem interested in what the world thinks of power or is powerful. Um, Now, while the, the scriptures speak of wealth and power in different ways, right, it speaks both. Wealth and power can be good, and wealth and power can be bad. Um, the emphasis in the scriptures, and especially the New Testament, is that we need to not seek it out, and we really need to be wary of it. Whatever money, power, or influence we do have has been given to us to be stewarded for the good of others and not ourselves. And all this, again, it flows out of our understandings that we are the children of God, And God is our Father. He knows all of our needs, and he promises to provide for them. And you see, this frees us up to minister to our neighbor, whether they are uh, a multimillionaire or whether they are the poor, to the the children around us or to the aged and the infirm. We are free uh, from gravitating towards anything that would make our name great or make us feel like, uh, you know, We're a big shot. The church doesn't need to be influential in politics. We don't need to get our uh, knickers in a bunch by which political party is in power or how the stock market did yesterday. Um, One candidate uh, coming into power or office over another is not going to help the kingdom of God, I promise. In fact, if it does, it's probably the opposite way that you think it will because that's the way God likes to work. And corrupting our morals, making sinful choices in order to get the right candidate into power, whether we justify it through fighting against abortion or fighting for social justice or fighting um, for individual religious rights or or fighting for those who are marginalized, if we corrupt our morals in, in the pursuit of those things, we, de- we destroy our witness. And we undercut the gospel of Jesus. You see, in the kingdom of God, the ends never justify the means. And the reason is because we often want good things, like victory. We want to win the battle because we, we think we're fighting for what's good. And, and I think often 
We are. We want victory. We want success. We want comfort. And there's nothing wrong with those things. There's nothing wrong with wanting those things. But Jesus and his ministry and, and all of Scripture shows us that God's victory often comes through earthly defeat. And kingdom success often looks like worldly failure. And receiving true comfort often comes through experiencing affliction. And so, it's true when Scripture says that God's ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts. And I think the crowd in our passage here um, gives us great reason to pause. Think about the crowd. This crowd has followed Jesus for some distance, and they're They are crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. They believe Jesus is the Messiah, and they're right, and they're taking off their cloaks, and they're laying them before him, right? They're betting on the right horse, as it were. But what is this crowd shouting a week from now? They're shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because Jesus didn't do what they thought he should do. You see, when we think we know what God is doing, when we think we know how God should be at work to bring his kingdom into this world, we're often off the mark. And so rather than uh, prescribing for God what it looks like, we need to follow Jesus' example of humility. Jesus said, I do what I see my Father doing in heaven. He didn't live uh, to meet our ex spec. And so let our faith be in the power and the purposes of God and follow wherever he leads. Uh, So, beloved, what does this mean uh, when we, this is what we mean when we talk about Jesus' upside-down kingdom. The way up for Jesus often is the way down in this world. Um, And this should give us incredible humility in trying to guess what Jesus is up to in this world. And we follow him simply by obeying his commands where we are. And yet it also gives us incredible hope and expectation because our God is the God who brings life out of death and victory out of defeat and joy out of sorrow. And so there we hold that paradox. We walk with our head high. We we walk with expectation and joy, even as we can say with great humility, I don't know what God's doing. I don't know what this means. He just calls us to be good neighbors where we are. So like Jesus, let us hold our heads high as sons and daughters of the King, even as we walk and follow him in humility, beloved. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, (laughs) you alone, as the Son of God, were able to hold this paradox in perfect balance. We often fall short. And so, Lord, give us grace and humility. Uh, Teach us your ways. And when we fall short, when we go the wrong way, be gracious and kind to us, O Lord. We long to be your body, your presence in this fallen world so that others might come to know, to follow, and to celebrate you as our Savior and Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.